This is the Cool Meanderings with Dr. Germ G Podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Cool Meanderings Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Germ G. Today is Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. Coming up on 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time here in the DMV. Just uh, in the middle of a reflection, um, after reading a, a piece in higheredive.com, written by uh, Mr. or Dr. Andy Hanna, uh, he's an adjunct professor of analytics and entrepreneurship at the University of Pittsburgh's uh, Katz Graduate School of Business. He also is president of Liaison International's OTHOT division. Uh, which deals with predictive and prescriptive analytics. And the relevance for me is that uh, he's discussing ways that institutions, higher ed institutions might um, turn to analytics as a means of trying to solve the dilemma of falling enrollments, which seems to be a, a huge issue for higher ed, higher ed institutions uh, not just in the U.S., but in other Western uh, societies. But just focusing on the U.S. for a minute, um, this piece resonated. It, it resonated with me um, for a few reasons. One is because you know I've, you know, ha- having researched higher ed um, as a, as a, as an expert. I have, my Ph.D. is in education and human resource studies with an emphasis on higher ed leadership. You know, I've part of my interest has been sort of just examining and observing the state of higher ed and its future, um, but also how higher ed might respond to not only the changes in, in demographics, but changes in uh, technology and and geopolitics. And so, I, for me, um, I ended up uh, focusing. My dissertation research on um, something called comprehensive internationalization, which is where a university creates a institution-wide strategy to try to create a, a more international environment through throughout the institution. So that could be, you know, the institution's mission statement, its its goals and objectives for the university, its fundraising. Uh, this campus uh, infrastructure, you know, creating infrastructure on campus that emphasizes um, international education, internationalization as a priority um, of obviously um, students, you know, not only the recruitment of international students, but also um, how those students are treated on campus, you know, how welcome they feel they feel on campus, how comfortable they are on campus, you know, in terms of where they can sleep, where they can study, where they can eat, where they can integrate with uh, the larger campus community, um, but also students that are recruited uh, domestically um, and even regionally. I, I took a specific interest in types of institutions that are considered to be regional public universities. These are schools that historically target uh, students that are 
within that specific region or town, uh, they, they tend to focus the majority of their recruitment on areas, lo- local high schools, local communities, uh, local economies. And, and I, I thought that, you know, these would be interesting institutions to look at to, to say, hey, you know, how do you, how do we take institutions that are historically regional and turn them into globally focused institutions? Like what would it take for a regionally public university to become globally focused in not only its recruitment, but in the way the campus runs, the way it teaches, uh, you know, even the way it, it, you know, it feeds the students and, you know, provides amenities for the students, activities. Yeah, so, but this particular column um, focused on the dilemma of uh, falling enrollments and it highlighted uh, the pending challenges for regional public universities uh, because of, of, of sort of the niche-like approach or the niche-like characteristics that exist at regional public universities, which is, you know, historically, these are rich, uh, invaluable institutions to the larger higher education landscape. But based on economic research, demographic research, it looks like these are the kinds of universities that will face the biggest challenges with falling enrollments. And the source of the falling enrollments has actually become multifaceted. I, you know, um, econ- uh, economist studies have focused on falling enrollments that trace back to the Great Recession in 2008. And, and it's... Oddly enough, you know, um, I can tell you personally, that was a very interesting time. Uh, my first child was born shortly after uh, uh, that period. And uh, there's one particular article that I that I read, actually, um, it was published in the uh, uh, the Hetchinger report um, back in 2018. And it focuses on the research of Nathan Graw, an economist at, at Carleton College. And um, just looking at some of the comments from that conversation, the one thing that stood out to me was the sort of the projection that, you know, uh, people that who went to college. Here's a direct quote from the article, by the way. The people who went to college 20, 30 years ago and got a degree. um, So that would be me. I went to college. I graduated from college 20 years ago. Um, They're now parents of kids who are looking at going to college in the next 10 years or so. So again, this was published in 2018. Uh, and yeah, uh, uh, yeah, my, my kid will be looking to go to college within 10 years. Um, we're, we're in 2022. I hope that, you know, by the time we're in 2032, my kid will be close to finishing college. But if I'm looking at it from the date of the article, 2018, yeah, by, uh, by 2028, uh, they'll be looking to go to college for sure. And uh, yeah, so um, basically, uh, to paraphrase the rest of the quote, the point was that, you know, kids that are that are looking or students that are looking to go to college at that time, you know, they're going to have the pick of the litter. I mean, it's going to be a student's market um, because uh, based on projections, the the competition for um, the competition for students is going to be fierce. 
But to just jump back to um, the piece by Andy Hanna, um, one of the reasons why, another reason why uh, this conversation resonates with me is because uh, the case that was used to make his point about the need for analytics to, you know, for regional or, you know, regional institutions to get creative with using analytics is because it referenced a school that the article references the school that I graduated from, Western Connecticut State University, uh, a regional public university in the northeastern, uh, in, 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 De- in Danbury, Connecticut, northeastern Connecticut. It's, uh, yeah, so just thinking about, wow, okay, it, 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 it hit personally from that perspective, but also just thinking about the reality for institutions like WestCon. Uh, that have to get creative and, and, and use analytics to try to figure out ways to innovate in admissions and find students that maybe they missed or they overlooked for, you know, a variety of reasons, you know, that could be related to budget, could be related to, you know, you know, different types of recruitment strategies that, that, you know, just did not necessarily consider um, the possibilities or and 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 look you know this this is clearly brought about by necessity necessity uh, due to circumstances the, cir- the market circumstances are such that institutions have to be become more nimble and innovative uh, to try to survive and uh, based on the column, I'm happy to report that uh, my alma mater seems to be doing well, at least in the interim. Uh, they've seemed to have figured out ways to to boost to boost their recruitment um, using analytics. So yay for that! But at the same time, just thinking about uh, the challenge that lies ahead for um, similar types of institutions, um, which are which is not a small cluster of higher ed institutions throughout the country, whether you're talking about regional public universities, community colleges, even some flagship uh, four-year institutions, public four-year institutions. And some, and you can even throw in some, you know, second-tier private four-year institutions. Uh, it looks like there are going to be some tough times ahead. Um, and again, I mean, part of this is due to um, circumstances resulting from um, resulting from the from the uh, um, Great Recession. But now, if you also throw in, you know, the pandemic, right, and throw in the you know the the the, the second um, unfortunate demographic shift. Due to the pandemic, uh, where you had again fewer families, you had fewer babies being conceived um, between 2020 and 2021 due to due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and the the effects of that particular demographic shift won't necessarily be felt for at least uh, another 10 to 15 years. So you you couple these two en- enrollment challenges together and and I think I think it's you know these 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 enrollment 
I call them challenges, but but these ships, you know, they, they can be and they have been described as a cliff. But I think they could also be described as challenges, challenges that, you know, some some institutions uh, uh, may be able to meet uh, by employing different innovative approaches, whether it's analytics or it's looking at consolidation or, you know, maybe looking at models from other markets uh, where you have uh, bundles of educational products. And and sure, you know, being a former faculty member, I understand, you know, discussing you know, the, the the academy in this way could be a little bit um, off-putting, but I think it's, I think we're at a point where it's not, where it's, I don't think it's unrealistic to start thinking about different models or ways of packaging, that's right, packaging educational content. Um it's weird because, you know, there are lots of higher ed institutions in the academy that are so focused, intently focused on rankings, right? And the rankings are tied to, they're tied to a somewhat of a commodification of higher education, right? The rankings are there to, to bolster the reputation of institutions and to emphasize, reemphasize the need for parents and students to invest, you know, 50, 60, 70, almost $80,000 annually in the educational product that these institutions are offering. The product being the, you know, the, you know, incomparable, you know, if you will, the incomparable campus experience of being with world-class faculty and Students that were a part of a highly, okay, in some cases, a highly selective admissions process and who are allowed to, who are afforded the privilege of engaging in critical dialogue and and, uh, dynamic academic conversations in world-class academic facilities and state-of-the-art labs and and plush amenities for students to relax and enjoy time out of class and opportunities for building connections and relationships that should last a lifetime and lead to the kinds of outcomes that parents want and on and on and on and on. on. The point I'm making here is that, you know, we should not be so put off by the concept of education as a commodity. It is a commodity. And as such, you know, when you're looking at it from the from a market perspective, yeah, you have to start thinking about ways to, you know, ways to model and package the educational content that you want to attract students with. And so, in my opinion, I think models like Coursera are not going away. In fact, 
um, they should expand. Um, from my understanding, um, I read somewhere that Coursera is, has actually been doing quite well. Um, yeah, this was in a, an article from Inside Higher Ed from last year, actually. This was a year ago. Um, apparently, um, from 2021, from 20, from 2021, so a year over from 2020, profits were up by more than 70% in the first, the first quarter for Coursera. Again, this is, this is from 2021. So one can imagine, um, I don't have the data in front of me, but I, I'm almost, I feel very confident in saying that Coursera continues to do well. Um, but again, I'm just, I'm just highlighting this example to say that, um, the, the models out here that are offering alternatives to the four-year degree are not going away and they are becoming viable for learners of all stages. Um, now, to give you a more relevant example, I was recently checking out uh, an article from the uh, universityworldnews.com. Uh, this was uh, an article by... Uh, Gary Bowles and Alejandro Caballero. Gary Bowles is, uh, he's the author of, uh, of a book that's called The Next Rules of Work. Um, and he, I believe he is a consultant. Uh, he's also involved with, uh, Singularity University and the co-founder of eParachute.com. Uh, whereas Alejandro Caballeros is a principal education specialist at the uh, International uh, Finance Corp, uh, which is part of the World Bank. But basically, um, in their article, they're basically highlighting examples of pivots that are happening in emerging markets, specifically focusing on um, alternative educational products uh, that emphasize online learning in, um, in, in markets like Peru and Mexico, where essentially these products are allowing learners to get the kind of credentialing and education that they need uh, in a short amount of time. And it's the kind of thing that um, what the authors are suggesting is is something that is not going away, but that, you know, institutions in Western markets should strongly consider um, in some way, integrating in some way as part of their higher education models um, as, as a means of planning as opposed to as a means of responding. Because I think the pandemic showed that, you know, having to, to respond to crises is not necessarily a strength of the higher education system in, in some Western markets. Uh, but hey, I'm just one guy opining here on a podcast uh, with, some, with some lovely uh, free audio from the YouTube audio library. If you haven't, please check it out. Um, just Google 
YouTube audio library, lots of free um, downloads. It's pretty awesome. But anyway, yeah. So I, I just uh, I'm laying this out here because I, you know, I think I mean we haven't really gotten into. I'm not. I haven't even touched on some of the other challenges related to higher education, particularly here in the U.S. Um, from the the cultural war that seems to have no end to you know uh, not only you know uh, enrollment challenges for for the four year degree but also enrollment challenges at the graduate level and the professional degree level and the uncertainty over uh, the the flow of international students into U.S. institutions so. And then there is, you know, the the long-term effects of inflation, the war in Ukraine. There are a litany of challenges facing every aspect of the U.S. society. And the the U.S. higher education system is no exception. And I reference it as a system, but it's really, you know, this is theoretical because we don't have an actual U.S. higher ed system. It's, we have a, it's, it's fragmented, okay? We don't have like, you know, the U.S. higher ed system is governed by regional accrediting bodies. Uh, we have a Department of Higher Ed that offers guidance, but it's the regional accrediting bodies that help to facilitate the quality of higher education uh, throughout this country, this great country. So what's going to happen? How do institutions respond? I mean, just just a just a you know based off of what I've observed and other and others have observed, you know whether it's you know evidence based or opinion based. I think the at this point, if we're talking about status quo, the the like the most likeliest outcome is that. Those institutions that have the resources, have the endowments, have the reputation, will weather the coming changes. Uh, they'll make, they'll be able to, they'll be able to afford to drag their feet on how they change the way they offer their educational products. Uh, those at the very top will probably continue to enjoy um, the high selectivity. Which means that you know, you know, students will be willing to pay whatever premium is put out there in order to get access to um, that that particular institution. But I think the vast majority of ins- of schools will probably have to take a strong, hard look at ways of reinventing themselves. Um, and part of it is. Shifting more to uh, a digitized product, right? A digitized experience for the students and for for instructors, for advisors. But there's also a huge question of resources and uh, an infrastructure. And thankfully, yours truly doesn't have to answer that question. But I can say that someone will have to. 
because change does not come without a little bit of discomfort, without a little bit of pain. So, um, yeah, they'll have to figure out a way to pivot um, and, and, and to do so without causing too much distress to, you know, the, the countless number of faculty and staff and other essential members of these communities that have basically held these institutions together for the last, you know, two decades. So, I don't know. It's it's an interesting... But um, complicated future ahead for higher education in the U.S. Um, but uh, I'm confident that uh, you know all of the expertise that exists in our campuses, in our classrooms, will be more than enough to figure out uh, the ne- the needed solutions to move higher education forward in this country. I look forward to seeing how it all comes together. And uh, giving you my take um, as it does. Well, that's all for me today. Thanks for listening. Um, If you've got any thoughts on where you think higher ed is going, feel free to drop me a line. DrGermG at CoolMeanderings.com you can also find me on Twitter at germdr. That's capital J, lowercase e-r-m, capital D, lowercase r. That's all for me. Until next time. Peace. This is the Cool Meanderings podcast with Dr. Germ G.